Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome back to Vice and Easy. Thank you again, as always, for joining me. This week, we're going to be breaking down a very stylish episode with a few very interesting guest stars. This week, we are breaking down season two, episode 19, entitled The Fix. Per IMDb, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. After Crockett and Tubbs arrest a dealer and the judge sets the bail much lower than they expected, Crockett is curious if there's something wrong with him. So he investigates. Turns out the judge in question has a huge gambling problem that might implicate his son and his son's basketball career. A a little bit of a different theme than we're usually used to Miami Vice, but of course, naturally, this all starts off with a drug dealer named Ortega. And we are getting to this in the cold open of the episode that opens up in the zoo, lots of beautiful birds flying around. One thing Crockett notices is that at least they're in their natural habitat. Unlike... They're kind of like an alligator on a sailboat. (laughs) (laughs) Haha. So while they're kind of scoping out the deal, we also see Zito and Switek in the bushes. And we get to see some beautiful flamingos. And then we see three guys dressed like 70s pimps meeting on a bridge. We see a briefcase open with a whole bunch of cash. However, it's a hit. It's a setup. We see guns come out, start firing. So the guy dressed in all purple, you will recognize him as the leader of the Orphans, one of the gangs not in the network, in the Warriors. And another guy split up, and they're both running away. Tubbs is chasing the guy with the briefcase, where Crockett is chasing our boy, dressed like a 70s pimp, in all purple. Now... They are able to use the cop cars to block in Ortega. And as this is happening, Tubbs is able to shoot the guy holding the briefcase. And I got an amazing gif of the briefcase exploding with all the bills floating in the air. And then this is the big moment. They're finally going to get Ortega. They open up the door to the limousine. Surprise, surprise. Ortega, you're a woman. After the intro, we open up. We are now meeting two gentlemen at the racetrack. One is a little bit more chit-chatty than the other. This one, the chit-chatty one, is of course played by Harvey Firestein. You may not recognize that name, but you will 100% recognize the voice. As he's trying to chat up a gentleman who really doesn't want anything to do with him, but it's very clear that they know each other and they have some sort of a history. And now it kind of makes more sense that they're reading up at a racetrack, given the theme of this entire episode. And our chatty one, also known as Benedict, played by Harvey Firestein, has some news for the gentleman that he is, well, ambushing at the racetrack. Like the one about a woman named Ortega. You read about that? I guess not. Vice picked her up a while back. Drug charges. Big investigation. Excuse me. I'm here to watch the races. Ortega's probably got a lot of money. Lots of contacts. Seems to me she might just walk. Now, why is he disclosing all this information? Who is the guy that he's ambushing at the racetrack? We don't know quite yet, but this gentleman is, number one, like six foot five, six foot six, as you'll see in every single 
cut of this little montage where he's going to different dog tracks, wasting all of his money, losing on every single dog that he's bet on. And he sticks it like a sore thumb because of how tall he is and he's naturally in the front of these races. So it's a little bit funny. I do not know why I do not have a clip, but the song in question, I laughed because I just heard, Gambler! And I was like, that's very funny. That's very apropos. So it turns out this the music that they use that I unfortunately did not get a clip of, I do apologize, is the instrumental version of Gambler by Madonna. So I was able to find the regular one on YouTube. Give me one sec. Now, quick update. I was able to find the instrumental version on Spotify, but there were no lyrics whatsoever where the, the one they played in Miami Vice at least had the chorus or at least had Madonna saying, I'm a gambler. So this is the seven inch version I found on Spotify. So just naturally imagine that as he's going to different dog tracks, trying to get his money. And again, he is possibly the best dressed person at this dog track. And then so when they actually reveal later on the episode who he is, it is incredibly shocking that no one has noticed him. And finally, we'll get to the next scene. Oh, okay. I have to preface this by saying, please, if you are driving, if you cannot look at your phone right now, Please do yourself a favor and make sure you pull it up after you've parked and you are safe to do so. Because the courtroom for this episode is historic. It is the purple, silver, geometric. It is wild. And the outside of the courthouse, beautiful. You can see it on my gallery. The inside, completely wild. And I remember this episode so vividly because it was during COVID and I kind of had the first inklings for, I was like, oh, I want to do a podcast. Just didn't end up working out at the time. So I remember I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just show my boyfriend a couple episodes. And I don't know why this one came up, but I was like, oh, you know, like it's actually like you have a lot of guest stars, very stylish. And so I played in this episode. He saw the courtroom and could not stop laughing. And I had to take myself out. I was like, oh yeah, if you've never seen Miami Vice before, and this is your first foray into Miami Vice, is this purple courtroom. (laughs) So do yourself a favor. If you're having a bad day, please go just look at these pictures. I maybe might try to make them into desktop, you know, like screensavers. So that could be my little project of the week if anyone's interested this courtroom it is naturally the cover art for this podcast episode i wanted to use it for both the audio release and the youtube release but i was like you know what it's not going to work the same with the dimensions for the youtube thumbnail but i really wanted to just this courtroom if i could just get this courtroom like tattooed on my shoulder i think that would be like a testament to miami miami vice fandom oh my god sorry so now all that comic relief aside <laughs> So that degenerate gambler that stuck out like a sore thumb with his tailored suit and the fact that he is possibly like six, five, seven feet tall, that is the judge providing, presiding over this case right now that Crockett is testifying at. Interesting. Now, the opposal counsel also looks very familiar. Why, it's Harvey Firestein, the gentleman that was talking to the judge 
in the previous scene. Interesting. So now we're seeing where this is kind of going. Now, keep this in mind. You don't have to be super familiar with law, but and I know that bail is kind of changing in how it's used historically. But in this case, you have an international drug dealer in Miami and you want to set a high bail because they pose a flight risk, naturally. However, this is the story the defense, Harvey Firestein, also known as Benedict, gives the judge. Judge Ferguson, not only is my client eager to come to court and face these charges, but she is presently under severe emotional and financial stress. Her boyfriend, her fiancé, has been hospitalized with a back disorder, and she herself has only recently discovered that she's pregnant. At a time of such intimate struggle, we feel it would be no less than cruel to separate her from her anticipated family. Hmm. Right. Yes. Of course, the international drug dealer is surprise, surprise, pregnant while they're discussing her bail. So Benedict asked that her bail be set $5,000. The prosecution of for whom Sonny is testifying for asking for $2 million, which is much more in the correct range of bail for someone who is that much of a flight risk. The judge orders a $7,000 bail. Crockett and Tubbs stare at each other in disbelief. They try to talk to the prosecutor. The prosecutor brushes them off, says that he's opening up his own firm. He doesn't care anymore, which, to be fair, I can totally sympathize with that. Wild, right? Like... That doesn't make any sense. So Crockett and Tubbs know that this is BS, but they can't quite put their finger on it. So when they go back to the precinct, they're back at OCB. Crockett is pouring over his computer, looking for information. When Trudy sweetly comes by with a little bit of attitude, but it's kind of well-deserved attitude, with files and jackets. So basically she says that she spent the past two days copying everything down at the clerk's office. And Crockett kind of blows her off. And I guess that he's just so focused. But he's like, ah, you know, whatever. It's all here on the computer. (laughs) Poor Trudy. (laughs) So Crockett and Tubbs are talking amongst themselves. Like, what's this guy's deal? Like this judge had worked him way up born into not one of the best neighborhoods, was able to get a basketball scholarship, put himself through school, put himself through law school. Crockett says himself that if this guy had run for mayor, he would have won. What's going on? Why is he so corrupt, dirty? They can't really put their finger on it. And furthermore, I was going to make this an Elvis legal minute, but I don't have enough information or legal information to really pad that up to even a minute. Most judges are appointed, not all of them, but a judge presiding over a criminal case brought by the state of this stature, I am assuming he would have been elected by the people. Therefore, it makes it even weirder that he's going to all these dog tracks and nobody recognizes him. Now, I understand that judges aren't exactly front page news material, but, you know, I would assume there would be media. I would assume there'd be 
he'd be on TV or he'd be on the radio or he'd be making appearances, that there'd be something about him that people would know. But I'm going to suspend logic for a little bit because this episode has just begun. And so while they're still at the precinct, they bring in, I I put the guy from the orphans. (laughs) I forget his character's name. I want to say it's Beliso. It is the same name as a composer. And I will figure this out in like two seconds. So they bring him in and they're questioning him. Surprise, surprise. He's a little bit nervous and he doesn't like talking to cops. Now, he says that Benedict can do favors for the right amount of money. Crockett sees an opportunity here in this next clip. You had cash. Do you think he'd take you as a client? He took an oath. He defending the rights of the common man. It's his job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're a hero. We're going to be back at you. Hey, uh, don't take too long. Uh, my my uh, tan's fading. <laughs> okay, uh, sleazy defense lawyer work in Miami does not have the everyday man or the commons man, common man's interests at heart. So I think that's a little bit funny. Maybe if he was a public defender. And also, he doesn't have to take on any clients he doesn't want to. He's running his own business at that point. But again, I am... Maybe there's like a... Am I just in a cranky mood? I don't know. I don't know why I'm being so judgy. Boy, I really hope somebody got fired for that blunder. Well, and now they got somebody to work with. Someone who is connected to Ortega that can later be used to get a little bit closer to Benedict. Sorry. And the guy from The Orphans, <laughs> a.k.a. Paul Greco in real life, rest in peace, his character's name, Berlioz. So sorry about that. I was like, that was not on my notes, and I can't just keep putting it as guy from the Warriors. <laughs> now, Sonny and Rico have an idea. They're both dressed, looking amazing in some beautiful colors here. We got pink, lavender, white, and sky blue. And they have the idea. They want to go see Ferguson's son in action. They're going to a Sky Blazers game. This is before the Miami Heat. So this is, I'm not 100% sure if they actually existed, but this is the Florida International University's basketball team, or this is at least where they're filming. <clears throat> Sorry. And when they get there, Crockett and Tubbs kind of stick out like sore thumbs. They kind of look like narcs. And again, they're just like walking across on the sidelines trying to find a seat. I was like, that's a little bit rude to just come into a game already in play and kind of take your sweet time but I guess you know it does make for it kind of they're able to scope out a little bit more because again who do you think they're looking for they're looking for daddy Ferguson and again Matt Ferguson his son playing great he's number 32 if you're watching and we see a gentleman we have not seen before looks a little bit intimidating he's whispering something to daddy Ferguson and they both leave the game leave the arena get into a limo while Crockett and Tubbs walk outside trying to figure out where this limo is going. All the meanwhile, P colon machinery, that is the name of the song, by propaganda is playing in the background while Judge Ferguson is being taken in the limo to surprise, surprise, a yacht. Let's go run a make on that chunk.
catchy song, am I right? And that kind of like horn section of the song fades away as he gets onto this wildly decorated yacht. Very 80s, very apropos of the time. Surprise, surprise. Guess who is his loan shark? Who's waiting for his money? Kramer, a.k.a. Michael Richards, a.k.a. uh, definitely had a huge fall from grace. And for some reason, I don't know what brought it up. It was maybe something on Reddit like two or three months ago. I was like, wow, like, I remember this. This was like kind of like the first celebrity meltdown getting canceled. But I was like, I think he had a very good reason for being canceled. Like, there was definitely solid evidence that he was being a huge racist. Watched the video again. I was like, oh, wow. I'm obviously not going to post like this video. You can easily Google it. Um, but yeah, and then you'll just see that background of the Laugh Factory. I was like, oh, yeah, that's also not great for the Laugh Factory's reputation, too. But yeah, I don't know what he's up to, nor do I care, but he is great in this role because it's kind of nice seeing him be a douchebag because we're so used to seeing him being weird as Kramer and Seinfeld. And this, maybe he's just kind of leaning into who he always was. And he's basically telling Ferguson, asking how much he has writing on the game that's coming up. Brings up his son, his talent. Basically mentions that... Ferguson's only paying off the interest and that he's not really making a dent in the principal and that maybe this game might be a way for him to win the money to pay back his principal to this loan shark. Basically brings up the idea of having Ferguson's son throw the game. Tells him he has two days to decide. And then we're back at OCB and Casillo tells them that they have to go ahead to bug Benedict's office. That is going to be a very fun scene that's coming up. But first, we're at Ferguson's house. Again, very accurately decorated. You get some white rails. You get some glass blocks. Not too crazy. Not too tacky. And he brings up that he wants to talk to his son about something. However, one of, you know, his guys is in the background basically joking that Papa Ferguson could be a ringer on the team. So he doesn't want to bring it up there and then. But he basically reaches out to his son and says that he wants help and that they'll talk about it later. Now, Trudy goes to the office with Gina. So Gina is kind of, it looks like a cop uniform, could be a security uniform. Didn't really get... I was too distracted with, number one, the receptionist's outfit, because it was very 80s, and she had a horrific perm that did nothing for her features. But unfortunately, that was just, you know, apropos of the time. Then we have Trudy, looking amazing in this utility suit, but it's pink, matching pink hat. And then she has sparkling square, very fun pink earrings as well. And it says telephone repair in cursive on her suit. Just looking like a million bucks. And then I also love, I've got a picture of her deconstructing or basically taking apart the phone and then putting the bug in. And it's like a tiny little microphone. And I don't even know what we would use now. It'd be so tiny and minuscule. But like in the 80s, this was the most tiny technology that we could have to bug someone's office. I think it's very interesting. But it's a little bit of a tense scene because we see Benedict outside, possibly with other lawyers. They're in fancy suits. We see a woman with big shoulder pads and rolled up sleeves. So I'm assuming she's also a lawyer. 
So again, we have this kind of like cat and mouse where Benedict is on his way back to the office. Trudy might be running out of time. Again, she doesn't have an earpiece. Only Gina does. And she's getting this info relayed to her from Zito and Switek, who are naturally, like always, keeping an eye on Benedict. And... Thankfully, Trudy gets there right in time. It's a very close call. Basically, it looks as if Benedict's coming up as Trudy and Gina are going down. So luckily, they're really quick to get out of there. Also, I understand that back in the day, it was a little bit harder to just Google something, you know, is so-and-so a scam. But I was like, I never let anybody into the house. And my dad always taught me that. He's like, if anyone knocks on the door, you do not answer. You do not make a noise. You prepare to call 911 if they try to get in. So maybe it's made me a little bit too paranoid because I've done this before. I have pissed off um, apartment complex repairmen because if they're not authorized, if I do not have prior confirmation that someone is coming into my apartment, they are not going to be let in. And I will basically have to be forced by my landlords to do so, which I think honestly is good advice. Do not let people into your home. Do not let people into your line of business. Even at the bar, if someone's like, oh, I have to, I'm coming in to check so-and-so, you can call my owner. You can deal with it. I am not letting you come grab information. I used to do this all the time with, I think it was the hydro. Sorry, we call or electric in the States. We call it hydro back in Ontario. And they would always come in and want to read the meter. I was like, no, get away. I was like, get off my property. Like, don't. I don't know what you're doing back there. I don't know what, I don't know if you're just reading. Like, you are not authorized to. I do not know what you're doing. Do not come into my house at all. And without prior appointment, confirmation, what have you. And no, you cannot just like rummage around the backyard looking for what have you. Because I don't know. There are a lot of scams. Don't let people in your house. Don't let people in your office. Don't trust anyone. Sorry, not to be a Debbie Downer, but... It's true. I understand that this is a bad person who deserves to be bugged, but this could also be you as an innocent person being robbed, being bugged, having people get information from you. I'm also saying this because recently I found out that my SSN got compromised and the address that they use, because you can see what zip code it's associated with, is the place I lived for one month when I first moved here. So something I signed up for or something I did led to my social security number now being compromised, which means now I have to freeze my credit. So it is a huge pain in the butt. And my social security number, it is not on me. Please do not carry your social security number in your wallet. There is no way you can ever get it out of me. So I have no idea how they got this. So I'm just being extra vigilant and extra paranoid. So don't let people in your house. Shred everything. Act like people have bad intentions until proven otherwise. And okay, sorry, rant over. Speaking of bad intentions, let's see what Benedict's business is all about in this next clip. And I was wondering if you could perform a similar service for me. Say you'd like me to defend you. I would like to stay out of jail. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm all booked up right now. You made room for Ortega. She was a special case. What does it take to become a special case? Ooh, I like this because you're like digging and digging and digging, but you're not using specific terminology that could alert them that you're basically trying to get them to admit something that they shouldn't be admitting 
on a mic'd office or a mic'd phone. So this is very interesting wording. So let's see how this goes. Because Ferguson is now going to go visit his son at practice. And remember, Ferguson's story was that he also got basketball scholarship when he was young and was able to basically build a career out of that opportunity. So you see him shoot a hoop or two. And then you hear quite an introspective song playing in the background called The Water's Too Deep. Well, again, we're talking about a really uncomfortable and sad theme of being a gambling addict. So sadly, that song works. And now Ferguson has to tell his son not only that he's in trouble, but that he needs his son to make a huge sacrifice because of the trouble he's gone into in this next clip. I know how hard you worked practice and sacrifice to get to where you are. I do the same thing myself. So I know it's going to be hard for you to hear what I have to say. I'm no kid. Just say it. I've lost a lot of money gambling. And to pay it off, I've had to borrow money from a criminal. He wants his money back. How can I help? Friday night's game. Dad. The man owns me. I can't believe this is happening. Now, as you can hear in the emotion or lack thereof in that past scene, neither actor in this scene is a trained actor. They are actually both basketball, not I wouldn't say legends, but definitely in the case of Bill Russell, basketball legends. And so keep that in mind. It's a little easy this episode to be like a little judgy with these father-son moments. Cause like, hmm, should be a little bit more heated. But again, they are incredibly skilled at what they do, which is playing basketball. So it's very hard for us to have it all because remember, we want to judge them for their acting, but then neither of us could probably make a few three-point throws on the court. So let's move on. Oh, there's a little funny moment and this isn't like funny, like haha funny, but it does. So <laughs> he's driving after talking to his son, he's crying. So it is very sad, but Ferguson's driving a smaller Mercedes, it looks like maybe a coupe. And he's just kind of like bent over the dashboard, looks to be sobbing, but he's just so big that it's kind of comical because basically just takes up the whole space of the car. So I thought that was a little bit funny that they couldn't like maybe take the top down if it was a convertible, give him a little bit more breathing room. But we definitely see there's emotion there. It is sad. And oh my God, I wrote, this was the largest car that I could afford. (laughs) Like in this instance. Oh, man. Well, back at the precinct, Gina's telling Crockett and Tubbs that they're close to getting permission to bug Ferguson. This is basically the only line that Gina has all episode. I didn't take a picture of it either because she's wearing the same long yellow dress that she's worn in a lot of other episodes. But nice to see her back, even if it's just in a small capacity. Now, in real life, Florida is a two-party consent state, which means you do have to either obtain a warrant or have permission to record somebody without their consent. So you cannot use a conversation that you have recorded illegally as evidence in the court, if I am comprehending this correctly. So we go back to practice. 
I keep saying Ferguson Jr. Matt Ferguson. You can kind of tell he's not in the right mind space. Naturally, his father has just asked him to throw the playoff game, thereby not only hurting his team, hurting his fans, hurting his future. And who knows if it's actually really going to help his dad overall. So he's definitely got a lot to think about on his plate. So at probably the worst time to go see him, Crockett and Tubbs go pay a visit. And obviously they're not welcomed with open arms. We want to help you, man. Listen, we're on your father's side, but we really got to know what's going on. No, I'm on his side. Look, I don't know you. And I don't want to talk to you. Matt, me and my father can take care of this ourselves. Uh, yeah, I do not blame Matt at all. I would probably also respond the same way if I were in his shoes. I just wouldn't know who to trust. Now, Zito and Swiatek come in with a little bit of comic relief once they spot Benedict coming around the corner. Uh, there's Eggs Benedict. Huh? Good. Let's see. Now, they're making that quip because Benedict is actually pulling up to Ferguson's house to tell him that... Berlioz, Ortega's former associate, came into his office. Ferguson tells him that it's up in the air, but that they're going to work together. And Ferguson kind of just blows him off like he's, you know, not really, he doesn't really want to hear this. He has enough on his plate and doesn't need to be further embroiled in more corruption. Benedict gets extra salty, ha 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 ha, in this next clip. Look, and I know how hard it is to think straight when you're broke. Get out. It's a nice place. Hate to see it in foreclosure. Thanks for dropping by. Oh, wow. I totally could see that exact line being used on The Real Housewives. (laughs) Hard to think when you're broke. Nice house. Hate to see in foreclosure. And they're meeting in his office. So he has all his trophies behind him. He has pictures of him and his son. Speaking of his son, Matt Ferguson comes by looking very handsome in his um, jacket, I may add. It's like a white cream colored jacket. Now, Matt has kind of changed his tune. Thinking about the bigger picture, not that I agree with this, but he really admires his dad and he really wants to help his dad, as you'll see in this next clip. Then I realized I wouldn't have anything to throw away if it hadn't been for you. Matt, I can't play poorly. But I was thinking... Maybe I could sit out the game. If that would help. I'll make that for you, Matt. I promise. Knowing what the answers are doesn't make it any easier, does it? In this job, you're lucky if they don't make it any harder. And that's Crockett and Tubbs listening to the conversation at the precinct at OCB. And so after this, having the news that his son is going to sit the game out, he goes back to Kramer, expecting that his loan shark is going to be a little bit more jazzed at the news. Surprise, surprise. Nope. 
Look, do you think that I'm interested in the best that you can do? You think that the people that I deal with give a damn about the best that you can do? Matt says there's already a couple of guys on the team. They don't have a chance. You tell your son that I don't want to hear his ideas about the game either. Now look, that team is going to lose because he's going to make it lose. I can't make him do that. Well, you better try real hard to convince him. Because if you don't, Marco and I will. And he's not going to like that. He's not going to like that at all. Now to lighten this up a little bit, you please go see what Marco was wearing. He's wearing like a very bright royal purple silk shirt. This yacht, as much as I love the blue light roof decorations at night, I also love that they have two tall men on this yacht that clearly does not have a lot of headroom. You can see when Ferguson is leaving that he has to duck. And you can see Michael Richards, the loan shark, basically kind of like almost hit the top with his forehead. So I thought that was a little bit funny, but wildly decorated yacht. I believe I see a golden swan, the bar set up. I'm very much enjoying this right now. Oops, continuity goof on my part. I realized that our boy Marco, as I was just raving about his wild outfit, uh, was already brought in and questioned by Crockett and Tubbs. So at this point, Ferguson is in a very tight spot. Basically, he has to ask his son to throw the game, and it's really weighing heavily on him. So he goes to sit in a park. Now, the one thing that bugs me about this scene is that with the way that they're talking about this park, they're making it sound like it's the hood. It's just a normal neighborhood park. I don't see anything dangerous or that would make me not want to just hang out in this park. And I understand maybe it's different at night. Maybe there's a different crowd. But like the way that they're positioning this park in the daytime, you have kids skipping. You have old men playing chess. I don't there's a, um, a boarded up building behind where Crockett is sitting. But again, it's not sketchy. There's no graffiti on it. There's no evidence of squatters or anything as not to be like. Not to throw the American card in here, but chances are if you lived in a major American city, you've been to a much worse park than this. So the fact that they're talking about, like, this is where I'm from and, like, I got out of here. After Crockett said that he basically grew up in a combat zone, I legit thought that he came from another country that was experiencing a civil war or civil uprising or a coup. No, he was just on the other side of the tracks. And, like, I've accidentally turn onto much worse parks than this in Miami. So this was just my little gripe with it. But their conversation, again, doesn't go as well as I think Sonny would have intended. He tries to reach out to him and basically kind of act on his level. You know, I also have a son. Very different. Number one, Sonny does not have custody of a son. Number two, Sonny's son, Billy, is maybe seven or eight years old. And... But I understand, you know, you're just trying to pull at those heartstrings. You're trying to show that you have empathy and you're trying to connect with somebody. So let's hear a little bit more about this conversation. Think about giving us Bagoni. No. That's how I got in trouble. Always looking to make a deal instead of facing my problems. No, I'm going to have to judge myself this time. And so that's that Ferguson wants to deal with his own problems and he wants to change the way he's been handling things. And I do respect that. He knows that the way he's been going about his life is not yielding the results he wants and therefore he's going to do something different. What he's going to do, 
we have no idea. Now we see Matt Ferguson. He's in the change room for the ladies. This is a nice little scene. And he gets his call from Pops in the locker room. Now, when I hear him, when I see him pick up the phone, I'm a little bit worried. But this phone call does a complete 180 from what you think it's going to do. How are you feeling? I don't know. Not too good, Dad. Feel better. I got everything worked out. What? Everything's taken care of. Oh. Hey, Matt. You know I'm a clutch player. So what do I do? You go out there, play the best game of your life. All right. I'll be looking for you. Oh, that's very sweet. And after that, we're going to cut to... OCB, where the lights are off. I'm like, oh, they don't even have a lamp on their desk. <laughs> where uh, Crockett's on the phone, assumingly talking to a prosecutor, says that he thinks he can get the judge to roll over, like he was talking about with Ferguson, and that basically like him and Tubbs, after the phone call, they're going to plan out to go for a drink. When Zito calls to say that Ferguson told his son not to worry, just to play the best game of his life, and that he's not going through with his plan... This is a little bit suspicious. And so Crockett asked Cito where Ferguson went off to. He went to the marina. Things are starting to click. Crockett and Tubbs leave OCB. They're on their way. Ferguson goes. Oh, my God. This is too funny. He points his gun at his bookie's lackey. Jump. You're kidding. Jump. Then Ferguson makes his way onto the yacht, and no surprise, he busts into the room where they're watching the game, the bookie and some very pretty girl. He basically gets super startled. He's like, what are you doing here? Why are you in my room? How'd you get in? Because, again, he's used to his lackeys making sure that nobody else gets on the yacht. He... Ferguson pulls out his gun, shoots the bookie right in the chest. Boom, boom. Blood spatters all over this poor girl as they're watching the game that his son is playing at that he wanted his son to fix. Now, Crockett knew exactly where he was. Crockett comes on the boat and he pleads with Ferguson not to do it as Ferguson has the gun to his head. And this is incredibly sad because I'm trying to keep track of how many episodes where someone has killed themselves in front of Crockett. Not to add where Crockett has, how many times Crockett has been the witness to murder, but to have someone take their own life in front of you must be so incredibly traumatic. So I really feel for Crockett during this scene. Don't do this, man. Don't. I'm breaking even, Crockett. I'm finally breaking even. Please. Please don't. And unfortunately, exactly what we thought would happen would happen, and Ferguson kills himself as the crowd is cheering on his son. You can hear it from the television. Wow, really rough end to the episode, but that is it. He is finally breaking even. He is finally stopping the cycle. 
unfortunately. And uh, that is the end of season two, episode 19. Now let's shake that off. Let's have a little bit of fun. Let's get to some fashion. Ooh, I really wanted some wilder outfits from this episode, but I do have to remember that so many of them take place in court or they're regarding lawyers and judges. Like, I understand they can't really be, you know, as cheesily dressed as I want them to be. So let's go over our wild card choices. My personal wild card choices go to two men in different shades of purple. Yes, we're talking about Burley Oz, a.k.a. the guy from the Warriors. And we're talking about Marco, the bookie's henchman, wearing this very bright, dark purple shirt in the daytime on the yacht that really took my attention away from all the other cheesy decor choices of the yacht. Those are my two top picks for wildcard. Now with decor, as much as the yacht tugged at all my favorite things about the 80s, you cannot deny the cheesiness of that courtroom. Furthermore, any courtroom I have been to, again, I've only been to, say, maybe four. So I've been to traffic court in Los Angeles and Toronto, and I've been to court court proper um, and Toronto and in Los Angeles. All those courtrooms were brown. There was no decor. Nothing. It's basically, it's there for business. Um, there wasn't really much, like, pizzazz. Maybe, again, if I were to go to the Beverly Hills courthouse, it might be, like, a little bit more stylish, more deco. But you wouldn't get this kind of decoration. You wouldn't get the giant gray block, like, geometric, and the light fixtures and the bright purple walls. Like, if you have ever visited a courtroom or worked at a courtroom that looked like this, please let me know. My DMs are open everything you can find me social at vice and easy podcast or feel free to email me at vice and easy podcast at gmail.com please send me these photos because i would love 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 to see this and to know that obviously this is a set but to imagine that someone could actually practice court in that kind of a setting would just make me so happy and furthermore, for best dress, let's get to best dressed woman. This I'm going to give to Trudy this episode. She and Crockett are almost matching in the scene where she's basically brought all the files. She's copied all the information from Ferguson's files and brought them into him. She's wearing more of a teal dress, whereas Crockett's is a sky blue shirt. But I just thought that was very charming that they're almost matching. However, this is tough. I really want to give it to Crockett and Tubbs. Crockett with the white blazer and the sky blue shirt and then tubs with the lilac, maybe gray, like a purplish gray suit with the pink tie. He's definitely worn this outfit before. I'm sure I've definitely seen this textured shirt on Crockett before, but they both look like a million bucks. And this is when they attend the basketball game. I also love, love, love Ferguson Jr., Matt Ferguson. I love the white jacket he's wearing. It's kind of like a bomber jacket. Just looks like a million bucks. But again, so in real life, yes, uh, let me get to some Vice tea now. Quick-headed here. I am now going to be splitting Best Dressed Woman between Trudy in the green dress and Trudy in the pink telephone service repair suit. Ah, Vice tea. So we already covered the hot mess that is Michael Richards. No more on that. If you want information, Google is your friend. Now, like I said... The father and son, Ferguson and Matt Ferguson, those were played by real-life basketball players. Judge Roger Ferguson, played by Bill Russell, uh, credit in this episode, I believe, is William F. Russell. 
and then his son, Matt Ferguson, played by real-life basketball player Bernard King. Now, of the two, Bill Russell has the more impressive basketball career. He really was known as a legend. The more I was reading up about him, and I have linked an article in the show notes, that he won 11 championships with the Celtics, two of them as the first black coach of any major American sports league, which I think is incredible. I have a few more notes. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1975, and a 1980 poll named him at that time, the greatest player in NBA history. Now, obviously, I know that times have changed. Bigger players such as LeBron, Kobe, what have you. But this talent was not really rivaled in 1980. Again, then we're getting to the 90s with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and all that. But in 1980, this is incredibly impressive. Now, Bernard King has also played for a ton of teams, including the New Jersey Nets, Utah Jazz, the Golden State Warriors, the New York Knicks, the Washington Bullets. He had an incredibly gnarly leg and knee injury, which I will not describe because broken bones through skin, don't want to deal with it. He's more commonly known now as a broadcaster. He did have a kind of iffy brush with the law and sexual assault. However, all those charges were dropped after he took multiple lie detector tests. But I'm going to leave it at that. And for the other guest stars, we have Paul Greco, um, the guy I kept mentioning from the Warriors. He also had about 19 credits that I'm looking up currently here on IMDb. The Cable Guy, Crocodile Dundee as New Yorker, Tracy Ullman Show as Raggedy Man. Uh, most naturally, I would know him from the Warriors. And he actually passed away in 2008 from lung cancer. And then Harvey Firestein, our very raspy... Benedict, uh, he's had quite a prolific career. Um, it is funny because I remember I mentioned the name and someone had no idea who it was, but I'm like, Carl from The Simpsons, remember? I want you to say to yourself, I deserve this. I love it. I am nature's greatest miracle. Go ahead, say it. I, I Trust me, Homer. I Take a step and say it. This is how I want to be as a friend, and this is how I kind of already am, but I'm, like, very much a champion. I love to cheer people on. I love to celebrate success because you're not always going to have that. People love seeing other people fail, and a lot of times you don't have people in your family. You don't have friends that will really support you. You should be supporting your friends, and you should be cheering yourself on. I guess maybe that is the motto of this episode. Ignore everything that happened in this episode. We'll just take... Harvey Firestein's performance of Carl and the Simpsons and run with it. But yes, I want you to be your own biggest champion and I want you to love and support your friends as much as you love and support yourself. And that is the episode. Ah, not to circle back, but so I couldn't sleep one night. So at five in the morning, I was Googling Harvey Firestein, his voice. Turns out that he is just naturally born with his incredibly raspy voice. It is a medical condition. I totally forgot. I will try to link it in the show notes. But that basically he was born with this incredibly raspy voice. And so it kind of got me thinking on kind of like a negative train of like how different would my life be if I had a different sounding voice. And I remember obviously my voice was not this deep when I was younger, but it was quite a bit deeper than other girls. And I remember trying to sound like this and I was trying to put my voice up at octaves and it just never sounded right. So I kind of love that Harvey Firestein really played into his voice and made that so central to who he is and brings that with him. So 
let's just celebrate everybody today. I'm in now. See, I was like in such a low energy mood when I started recording and now I'm so much happier. So thank you because that's each and all of you for listening, supporting. It makes me a lot happier and it makes me much happier to do this podcast knowing that people love and appreciate what I do. And speaking about that, you can follow me on all things social at Vice and Easy Podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, to never miss an episode and never to miss any bonus episodes. And again, you can always view all the galleries at Imgur, or you can always find them in the show notes to each and every episode in the description. Thank you again for listening, for following, for liking, for keeping this alive. I love it. Support your friends and cheer your friends on like Carl cheers on Homer. And with that is the episode. Hey man, Miami Wise is number one new show.